Good morning to you all. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. We're glad you're here if you're visiting this morning. Glad you came uh, to be here with us as we celebrate the love of our Savior Jesus, as we remember his grace towards us, and the fact that all of us, sinners, everyone, can find redemption, cleansing, and life in his name. As, a, as you look around the room this morning, it's obvious we're missing a lot of our church family today. Uh, Douglas County, as you all know, there's a lot of sick people right now, and our church is no exception to what's going on at the county level. So we have more people than normal probably watching at home today. So we send our greetings to those of you at home. We hope you guys get well soon and can come back and join us for worship. So let's go ahead and bow and pray as we get ready to open God's word, and we'll look into the book of Titus this morning together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that love that we've just been singing about and the grace that takes our sin and cleanses us and guarantees us a hope of life, hope of eternity in heaven with you. Lord, we confess this morning that there's none of us that can cleanse ourselves. There's none of us that are beyond the need of your grace. But we come to you today thankful that everything we need has been provided. Everything has been given to us through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. And so, Lord, as we approach your word this morning in light of that gospel, in light of that grace, in light of that love, we pray that you would give us um, an openness to your working in our lives. We recognize that your grace not only um, saves us and transfers us out of death and into life, out of the darkness into the light, but we know that your grace is also meant to purify us, to change us little by little, to be more and more like the Jesus that we worship. So, Lord, may we go from here today different and changed because of what we see in your word. And, Lord, we also pray for those who are at home today, those who are unable to make it due to weather or sickness. We pray that their experience of grace as they sit under the preaching and teaching of the word this morning would be real and it would result in the same change that we're seeking here in this room. So, Lord, do your work in us by your spirit and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please open up this morning to the little book of Titus in the New Testament. We started a few weeks ago working through this short letter. We'll be in Titus chapter 1 today. Our text is verses 10 through 16. Um, I had a a friend in high school whose dad was like the quietest, most mild-mannered, nicest guy you could ever meet. And one time my friend told us this story that blew my mind. They grew up in in rural Nebraska um, out on a farm. And my friend had two siblings, an older brother, a younger sister, and they were all really young, you know, toddlers and, you know, little kids running around outside. And they had a neighbor who had some really big dogs, very large dogs, very aggressive dogs. And those dogs didn't stay on the neighbor's property. In fact, they would often come onto my friend's property, onto their farm, and even chase the little kids. And the kids were terrified, Uh, not just because little kids are terrified from big dogs, but these dogs could have, like, eaten these kids. They were that big and that aggressive. So my friend's dad goes over to the neighbor, as many of you dads would, and he said, hey, you need to keep your dogs off of my property. But the neighbor blew him off. He didn't take him very seriously. It's like, yeah, whatever. And sure enough, not a short time later, The dogs were back on his land, and so my friend's dad calmly took his deer rifle, and he shot them both, and then he went and dumped their bodies on the man's driveway. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? 
Did my friend's dad just hate dogs? No, that's not the issue. Did he just have a craving for death and for shooting things? Not at all. Was he the kind of guy who just was always looking for a fight and just loved interpersonal conflict and wanted to live next door to someone who hated him? No, that's not what he was after at all. The reason why he did what he did was love. It's because he loved his kids. And he was willing to do whatever it took in order to keep his children safe. And if that meant some unfortunate um, health problems for some of the local animals, then so be it. That was a price he was willing to pay. Here's the simple point. Love compels us to confront and to challenge anything that might threaten the thing that's precious to us. That's actually an expression of love. And in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, what we find is that one duty of faithful leaders in the church, that's what Paul's talking about here in Titus 1, one of the duties that faithful leaders have is to confront anything that might threaten the health of the church. Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to oversee the growing ministry that was there, to establish healthy churches, churches that would prize and proclaim the gospel. And the first thing that Titus was supposed to do, which we saw last week, was to establish elders in every church, to set up the right kind of men who would lead the church. These elders, as we saw, were supposed to be above reproach in their home. They're supposed to be of reproach in their character. And then third, as we saw in verse 9, they were supposed to be of, above reproach in their doctrine. If you look down with me at verse 9, it says, He, this qualified elder, this pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, notice this, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why is it important that an elder, that a pastor, be, be sound in his doctrine and able to teach and give instruction? Why is that so necessary? Well, one reason is so that the leader in the church can rebuke those who contradict God's word. Whether they contradict what is sound doctrinally in their belief or their behavior, what that calls for from the leader is rebuke. And if this little word in verse 9, rebuke, sort of raises our eyebrows and says, really, is, is rebuke really that important? Is it that necessary? And what sort of thing calls for rebuke? Well, Paul explains why this rebuke is needed in verses 10 through 16. We'll read our text this morning. Paul continues, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit 
for any good work. Paul's simple point this morning, which I hope to make clear is my point as well, is that faithful leaders in the church must confront anything that is contrary to the gospel. Faithful leaders in the church must confront anything that's contrary to the gospel. And I think Paul shows us a few reasons why here in this text. I'm going to share this with you this morning. The first reason why a faithful leader is going to confront anything that's contrary to the gospel is because, number one, a false gospel damages people's lives. It's what we see in verses 10 through 11, that a false gospel damages people's lives. You see, ideas, as we all know, have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And false doctrine is not just incorrect, it's harmful. It harms the church. The Apostle Paul had expressed in his opening words to Titus that he, as an apostle, was dedicated to the well-being of of the church, of the people that God loved, the elect. In verse 1, he describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And that's why he's serious about false teaching. That's why Paul is ready to challenge and confront a false gospel, because false teaching threatens to undermine the faith of God's elect. And it threatens to corrupt their lives. Knowledge of the truth accords with godliness, but false teaching is corrosive. So Paul rightly understands false teaching, bad doctrine, a false gospel as a threat to the church. And this error doesn't just exist floating out there in the air. It's not just some abstract idea that needs to be combated. Paul points out that there's always certain people who promote false teaching. Look in verse 10 what he says about the proponents of this damaging doctrine. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. It's interesting, as as we look back at the verses before this, uh, verses 5 through 9, we have the qualifications for for healthy leadership, for, for godly leaders. And there's a stark contrast between the portrait that Paul paints for a godly qualified leader and these false teachers. I just want to contrast these for you. We notice in verse 9 that the elder is to hold fast to the word as it has been taught. But these false teachers, in contrast, are described as insubordinate. They're rebellious. It's not that they're pushing back against Paul as a man. It's that they're pushing back against God's truth. They have a problem with the truth of God. They're insubordinate. And while the elder is supposed to teach sound doctrine, the speech of the false teachers is described here in verse 10 as empty. It's hollow. It's not sound. This word for sound, we we don't use this word sound very often. We think of sound as, you know, sound waves that you hear with your ears. But imagine if you're climbing a tree and there's a branch that's rotted out on the inside. It's hollow. You don't want to step on that branch. It's not sound. It's not healthy. It's not solid. It's not connected to the trunk. If you step on it, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. Biblical leadership is supposed to hold fast to sound doctrine, but these false teachers, they are empty, hollow. They're empty talkers. And Paul calls these guys out by name. He says they are those of the circumcision 
party. He doesn't beat around the bush. It's the same group here that Paul has to deal with nearly everywhere he goes. That's why if you read the book of Galatians or the book of Colossians or the book of Philippians, it seems like Paul's always having to deal with this specific group and their teachings. You see, the gospel can be corrupted by false teaching, and that happens in two ways. You can corrupt the gospel either by subtraction, taking out necessary truths. So some people who claim that Jesus wasn't truly the Son of God are corrupting the gospel by subtracting essential truth. But you can also corrupt the gospel by adding unnecessary things in. And that's exactly what this group, the circumcision party, was doing. These people were insisting on certain religious rituals, claiming that the Old Testament Jewish laws, including circumcision and certain dietary restrictions and observing the Sabbath and other holy days, they claimed that following those religious rituals was necessary for salvation and for sanctification. And so by adding in these unnecessary things, they were polluting the pure message of the gospel. But listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 3.20. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul says they're flat wrong. Keeping the law, jumping through all these hoops, that's not what makes you right with God. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, this religious ritual, nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul says it's not about the rituals that you perform. It's about whether or not you have faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everywhere Paul goes, he faithfully preaches the true gospel, That salvation comes through trusting in Christ, not through doing good works and keeping Jewish laws, jumping through all of these hoops. And that's why Paul says that this circumcision party, that their teaching is empty and hollow. It's not sound. They have corrupted the gospel. They have denied the simple truth that salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God. And it comes through faith. We simply receive it with open, trusting hands. So there's this contrast that these men are insubordinate instead of holding fast to the word they've been taught. They're empty talkers instead of holding to sound doctrine. And then one more contrast. While the biblical word is trustworthy, that's how it's described in verse 9. It's this trustworthy word. These men are deceivers, verse 10. They're deceivers. Now that doesn't mean they never use the Bible. It doesn't mean that these guys never, you know, quoted Bible verses, But just like Satan can take God's words and spin them and twist them into a lie, these men were twisting the truth of God and deceiving people with it. So Paul condemns these men for their character. He condemns the content of their message. And then look at the result of this damaging doctrine, verse 11. Verse 11, he says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Whole families are being upset by what these people are saying. Not upset in the sense of just being emotionally troubled, like, wow, I'm really upset that you would say that or do that. It's rather the idea of being turned upside down. Maybe you've heard the phrase, don't upset the apple cart. Well, let's just say that there was apples rolling all over the place on the island of Crete because of what these men were preaching. Entire families were being thrown into confusion 
by these false teachers. This hits far too close to home for many of us. Maybe you've seen the result and the impact of dangerous ideas, false teaching. Over the last two years, we've seen how deep convictions about things like social justice or critical theory or what we should do with COVID or uh, politics or a number of different things. You've seen how sharp disagreements about these matters can wreak havoc in homes. It's painful. It's painful. Paul isn't addressing this false teaching because he's just obsessed with winning arguments. It's not just that he has to be right. It's because he sees the damage that this false gospel is doing to homes, to people, to families. It's destructive. So he condemns these false teachers. He condemns their character. He condemns the results of their false teaching. But he's not even done. He also condemns their motives. If you look in verse 11 once again, he says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is their false motive. A desire for gain, for for them to come out on top, having more than they had before. A desire for gain, whether that gain is money or whether that gain is power or glory, a desire for personal gain has always been and will always be the prominent feature for false teaching. It was true then and it's true now. It's the same today. That's why Jesus warned us about this. He says, listen, you cannot serve God and money. So if someone is in love with money, If someone desires gain, if that's what they're pursuing, then it should be obvious that God isn't their God. Money is. They don't love God. They should not be allowed to speak for God. They should not be trusted as faithful teachers who can point us to God and his truth. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The problem is not money. The problem is not having it or or acquiring it. The problem is people who crave it, people who desire it, people who are willing to compromise the truth and promote error in order to get it. That is shameful gain. We don't have to look far in our own day to find people who are eager to promote their own name, to promote their own ministry, to promote their books and their conferences, their organizations, whatever it may be, and really what's driving it is this desire for shameful gain. That should always be a huge red flag for us. And Paul exposes that. He exposes their corrupted motives, their corrupted character, their corrupted teaching. All of it, he says, is wrong, and it's causing damage to the church. So what's the response to this damaging doctrine? Verse 11, once again, we can look at it. They must be silenced. They must be silenced. How do we do that? How could Titus silence these false teachers? How can we silence those who promote a false gospel today? It's through the proclamation of the authentic gospel. 
This is not a command to the church to use physical force to silence them. No. Paul is calling Titus to let the truth ring out loud and clear. Because here's what happens when you proclaim the truth. The proclamation of the truth, of the authentic gospel, will always draw out opponents. And it will always expose their error. So the sword that must be wielded in this battle is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what we use to silence false teachers. I love what God says in Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? If we want to silence those who corrupt and distort the gospel, we very simply must proclaim the truth of God's word. Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher from the 1800s, once said in a sermon that was titled, Christ and His Co-Workers, he said, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, And here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology or defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. He's exactly right. He's exactly right. So the duty of faithful, godly leaders is to let the lion out of the cage, as it were, to protect the flock by proclaiming the truth. So as God's stewards in his household, pastors, elders, leaders must be those who deal with those that would oppose God's truth and cause harm to the church And we do this not by physical force, not by manipulation, not by the power of our personalities. We do it by simply proclaiming the powerful truth of God's word. We preach the truth. Let the lion out of the cage. Preach the word. Preach Christ. That is how they must be silenced. Exposing the emptiness, the hollowness of that false gospel. And simply proclaiming the truth of sound Doctrine. So leaders must challenge and confront destructive ideas from false teachers because a false gospel damages people's lives. It's damaging. But there's a second reason why Paul says that godly leaders, faithful leaders, must challenge and confront error. Number two, a false gospel not only damages people, it also fails to correct cultural tendencies. A false gospel fails to correct cultural tendencies. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You see, a false gospel is not just technically incorrect. It actually doesn't work. It has no power. It doesn't have power to save people. And it also doesn't have power to change anyone. These false teachers were claiming to possess the truth, but this truth did not accord with godliness. In fact, these supposed spiritual leaders looked no different than the surrounding culture. 
Paul uses a well-known proverb of the day to expose their worldly behavior. He says, you guys have heard the saying, right? A, a prophet, a Cretan, you know, one of their own. Listen, they said this about themselves. I'm not, I'm not creating a stereotype. I'm just repeating what you guys always say, which is that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul simply goes, this testimony is true. The shoe fits. Some people may read this passage and go, wow. So is, is Paul, is, is Paul um, discriminating against Cretans in their culture? Is Paul sort of wrongly perpetuating some sort of like really judgmental stereotype? No. Paul's simply acknowledging the obvious. He's calling a spade a spade. And he's telling Titus that these sins that are so common in the culture of Crete that are so accepted by everyone, it's just par for the course. He says, listen, these sins need to be confronted because they are contrary to the gospel. Their cultural tendencies were out of step with the truth of God's word. Listen, doctrine that doesn't result in holy living is either faulty doctrine, it's incorrect, or it hasn't been truly believed. If we really have the truth and we really believe the truth, it's supposed to shape the way that we live. That's why, again, in verse 1 of the book, Paul talks about this knowledge of the truth that accords with, that produces, that fits with godliness. Very simply, the false gospel these people were preaching had failed to change them. It had failed to correct their cultural tendencies. And the solution is to rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply, he says, so that they may be sound in the faith. This is a function of preaching the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, there's that corrective idea, for correction and for training in righteousness. To rebuke these people is to tell them their fault, to tell them you are lazy, you are gluttonous, you are a liar, and that needs to change. The goal is not to cut these people down. The goal is not to just shame them or to belittle them. No, the goal of this rebuke is so that they might become sound in the faith. This testimony is true, verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they would feel bad about themselves. No. So that you would look better than everybody else? No. Rebuke them sharply so that everybody can see that you're right? No. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is for their good. It's for their good. To call these people to believe the truth and allow it to shape them. You know, as I was reading through this this week, it made me wonder, maybe you thought the same thing. I wonder what Paul would say about us in our culture. You know, he knew the stereotypes of the people on the island of Crete. In fact, the, the verbal form of Crete in, in the language means to lie. Like, they're known as liars. That's kind of who they are, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. What would Paul say about us? What would he say about us Midwesterners? What would he say about the middle class? What would he say about people who grew up in church and were part of sort of this cultural Christianity? What would he say about us? What stereotype would actually fit? What are our tendencies that do not harmonize with biblical truth? Things that we just sort of accept because it's common and it's not a big deal to us, but it is a big deal to God. 
What are the ways in which we tend to look just like the world around us? I think Paul would probably have some words. You see, the knowledge of the truth must accord with godliness. And if we believe the true gospel, not only does that mean that our sins are forgiven, praise God for that, but it also means we as a people are going to be engaged in this process of progressively changing to be more and more like the Jesus that we worship. So leaders need to confront teaching and living that is contrary to the gospel because a false gospel harms people and a false gospel fails to correct certain cultural tendencies. There's a third reason that Paul brings out as to why we must confront error. Number three, a false gospel produces hypocrisy. Produces hypocrisy. If I can just pick up in verse 13 once again. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Keep in mind here the the context of what Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with this circumcision party, It's a Jewish heresy that insisted on keeping all of these Old Testament laws, which included many regulations regulations about cleanliness, about purification. That was a big deal. And the irony here is that these people devote themselves to human commands and regulations because they're trying to be pure. They're trying to say, don't eat that. It makes you unclean. But ironically, everything they do, everything they touch, Paul says, is defiled. It's defiled. When he refers to the pure here, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. What does he mean? The pure are those who have been transformed by the gospel. Those who are pure does not mean those who are perfect in the sense that they never sin anymore. It's rather those who have been cleansed of sin by the blood of Christ. Look over in chapter 2, verse 14. Paul, talking about the gospel, says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to what? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. What Jesus does in dying on the cross is purify sinners. So Paul, when he says, to the pure, all things are pure, he's not condoning sin. He's not saying, well, if you're a Christian, you can do whatever you want because everything's pure now. No, that's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that simple physical items like eating certain foods, for example, or, or not washing your hands in a special way before specific meals like these people insisted on, that's not what makes you pure or impure. Those things don't matter. Those who are in Christ Those who believed in the gospel are pure before God. And we are no longer under the ceremonial laws. Those things don't apply to us. To the pure, all things are pure, which I'm glad because I like bacon. It's a good thing, okay? To the pure, all things are pure. And he contrasts the pure here with those who are not pure, to those who are defiled. And then he gives us a synonym for defiled. They're defiled and unbelieving. Defiled and unbelieving, to them nothing is pure. Those who have not embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, those who have not been cleansed and purified by his blood, those who have not placed their faith in the gospel, because they have not believed, 
To them, nothing is pure, and they are defiled. Those who don't believe in Christ can never be pure before God because all of their efforts to become pure, it rests on their own merits. It rests on their, their own working. They're trying to make themselves acceptable to God, to cleanse themselves. But listen, no matter what the sinner does, he can never make himself clean before a holy God. So jumping through all those hoops, doing all those rituals, keeping the law, that's not going to make you pure. This becomes painfully evident when you look at the lives of these false teachers. Paul wraps up this section in verse 16, says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. That doesn't sound like pure. It's kind of ironic. These people who profess to know God deny him by their works. Instead of these purity fanatics becoming pure, they've actually become hypocrites. This is hypocrisy. And a false gospel produces hypocrisy. People who say one thing and do another. People who claim to believe in God but live a life that's contrary to his word. So these people are not pure. No matter how much they claim they're doing all the right things. They're still defiled, still stained by sin. Jesus warned us against these kind of false prophets. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. We know that. Jesus concludes, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Listen, false teachers who proclaim a false gospel, who claim to have all the answers, who claim to be pure, who claim to be up on this higher level, Jesus says you can, you can actually figure it out pretty easily. Look at the fruit. What does this truth that they claim to believe produce in their lives? False gospel must be challenged, must be confronted because it produces hypocrisy. We need to ask ourselves this morning, is there hypocrisy among us here today? Would there be any among us here who profess to know God, could show up to church and sing these songs and know how to say the right things, but your life is actually a denial of God? While all of us sin, There's a difference between weakness that is submitted to Christ and striving to grow in godliness, trusting in the gospel, and someone who says one thing and does another. To put it another way, there's a difference between genuine faith and unbelief. Paul says that these people are defiled and unbelieving. Belief, genuine faith is the issue. Listen, if you are here today and you're feeling guilty, you're feeling convicted because you know there's things in your life that are not pure. Listen, if you're not believing in Christ, if you've not received the gift of salvation by grace through the gospel, then listen, no amount of church attendance is going to make you pure. You can come seven days a week, listen to millions of sermons, sing all the songs that have ever been written, but that's not going to make you pure. 
Doing good works, trying harder to be a better person, that's not going to cleanse you. Listen, only Jesus can make you pure. It's only by his blood that we can be cleansed. It's only by believing on him that we are washed and sanctified. It's his work on the cross that purifies us inside and out. I already read from chapter 2, verse 14, to show you that Jesus died to make you pure. If you flip over to chapter 3, Paul gets at this same idea again. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Actually, I'm going to back up because this whole thing is just too good. Verse 3, we'll start in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That describes who we once were apart from Christ. And maybe that describes who some of you today are. What's the solution? Look in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. No, that's not it. Salvation is not because of what we do. No, no, no. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how salvation happens. That's how people become pure. That's how you, sinner, can be cleansed. Not by doubling down on your efforts to be a righteous person, but by receiving something from Jesus. Allowing him to do for you, to do in you, what you cannot do for yourself. So if this idea of hypocrisy is convicting to you, if you see yourself as someone who would claim to believe in God, but your life is marked by sin, then the call for you is not to try harder to correct that on your own. The solution is to look to Jesus Christ, to believe in the true gospel, the gospel that Paul was fighting for here in writing this letter, the message that Jesus died for sinners and rose again, and that we simply receive his grace. We are cleansed, we are washed, and we are changed by trusting in him. And then he begins this work of making us into a new person who lives in a different sort of way. So a false gospel produces hypocrisy, but genuine faith in the true gospel produces change and an authentic life, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So three reasons why faithful leaders are always going to confront and challenge a false gospel. So you might ask, okay, Well, now I understand what was going on on the island of Crete, and now this letter makes more sense, but what does this have to do with us today? What are the threats to the gospel today? The circumcision party isn't causing any problems in Douglas County, so who is it that we need to watch out for? Well, we could go on and on. This could be another sermon. This could be a whole series of sermons, but I'm just going to throw a couple uh, threats out for you, a few threats to the gospel. I think one threat, one modern-day threat to the true gospel would be what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. This is the claim that material blessing is promised by God in this life. That God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And that if you just believe enough, if you trust God enough, he's going to make all your dreams come true, right? 
Some of you guys have been around this. You've heard this. If you've never heard it, um, just look up TBN, the cable channel. Watch for 10 minutes. You'll know what this is all about. This is the claim that, that material blessing, that having money and influence and wealth and health, that this is somehow the sign of God's approval. But this is really the skin of Christianity that's stuffed with basic human greed. It's not the true gospel. So if we're going to proclaim the true gospel, we need to be loud and clear that that's not what we mean. And that any who try to deceive people for shameful gain, getting you to send in money, you know, just call the 1-800 number at the bottom of the screen, and you say, no, that's empty. That's not sound doctrine. And it produces hypocrisy and it damages people. And those people must be silenced. A second threat to the gospel is what you might call the social gospel. The social gospel. There are some who would say that the aim of the cross and the meaning of the cross was not simply to atone for sin and reconcile man to God. But rather, the message of the gospel is about fixing and repairing societal ills. Those who preach a social gospel will claim that the moral example of Jesus is more important than the substitutionary death of Jesus. And that our main job is not to tell people how they can be rescued from sin, but our main job is to improve health care, to solve the disparities in education, uh, to make sure that the income gap is fixed, to make sure that poverty is alleviated, to make sure that you know, there's all of these social ills, and that's really the mission of the church, and that's what the gospel is intended to address. But that's not the true gospel. That's bringing corruption to the gospel, not by removing truth, but by adding in all of these other things that dilutes and then damages the power of the pure gospel. But I think there's a third type of gospel that's probably the one we need to be more careful about because it, it more easily creeps into churches like ours. And that's what you could call an impotent gospel, a powerless gospel, a small gospel. There are some who say that the gospel is not big enough to address the issues that we have. There are some who would say that the gospel isn't enough to address racial animosities, that the gospel isn't big enough to heal the pain of personal trauma. The gospel isn't really the answer. It's not big enough to transform deviant sexual desires. It's a gospel that needs the help of psychology. It's a gospel that needs the help of sociology to really make humans whole and address all of our needs. But that's a very small gospel. It's a gospel that denies the truth that Paul preaches to the Corinthians, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, and old things are passed away. It's a gospel that denies what Romans chapter 1 says, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This is an impotent small gospel indeed, if it's not big enough to speak to and address the various challenges that we face as humans. We could go on and on, in addition to the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, or what you could call this impotent gospel, we could list others. But here's the common denominator with all of these. The common denominator with all of these false gospels is that they move away from the necessity and the sufficiency and the priority of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. They either take something away or they add something else in, and they corrupt the gospel, either by addition or subtraction. And we need to be on guard against that, church. 
We need to be on guard against that and be willing and ready to engage it, to challenge it, to correct it. If you believe that the truth of the gospel is important, if you believe today that false teaching actually harms people and that the health of the church is essential to this mission of spreading the gospel for the glory of God, then that means that you must be ready to embrace the responsibility to engage false notions about the gospel. But just as we conclude, I want to give you just three different points of application, three different ways that we can maybe get this wrong. And this is important if you're taking notes. Number one, this this caution I want to share with you, we need to beware, if we're going to do this, we need to beware having an unhealthy appetite for controversy. We do need to be careful. Beware having an unhealthy appetite for controversy. Some of you guys have been through some battles. I've heard your stories. Some of you are sort of like the kind of soldier who, who comes home after a tour of active duty, and then every time the door slams, they can't help but go into full-on combat mode. And I get that. Some of you guys feel like that in the church. You're on high alert at all times, and you're ready to sort of ready, fire, aim, you know, at any threat that may even appear to come into the church. And I get that. But we need to realize that there's a danger there. There's a danger in having an unhealthy appetite for controversy. Worse yet, some people simply just like to fight. They like the rush of conflict. Some people like the attention that comes with being the spokesperson for the truth. Some people like a chance to flex their muscles a bit and win arguments. But such people, we need to understand, are being, they're they're demonstrating that their character, they're being characterized by anger, not by love. They're being characterized by self-righteousness and a harsh critical spirit. And and while these kinds of people that, that have an unhealthy appetite for controversy, they often claim to have high levels of discernment. That's a key word you'll hear often. That I'm just being discerning. We need to have discernment. I am especially gifted in discernment, they will often say. But ironically, they often demonstrate that they really don't have discernment because they don't know which hills you should die on. They're they're ready to die on every hill, no matter what it is. And they don't actually have a good biblical sense of sound doctrine to recognize which truths stand at the center of the gospel and which truths are you know, three or four dominoes away and are implications of the gospel and not necessarily hills that we always have to die on. So we need to be careful about having an unhealthy appetite for controversy. And I think the solution for this, if you say, okay, I I think you might be describing me a little bit. How do I change? What's the solution? The solution is to keep in view the proper goal. Keep before us the proper goal. The goal of engaging false doctrine is not just to take scalps. It's not just to win arguments. The goal is to uphold what is good for God's people. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in a very similar letter to the book of Titus. 1 Timothy 1.3 He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy has the same issue Titus has. There's people teaching this false doctrine, and he's supposed to correct it. And then Paul says this in verse 5, the aim of our charge, the goal is love that issues from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What will help us to not have an unhealthy appetite for controversy is if our aim, if our goal, if our priority is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Listen, we want families to be stable, not turned upside down. We want the crooked to be made straight. We want people to be sound in the faith. We don't want anyone to be deceived. That's our goal. Love for the truth must be paired with love for people. And if we keep both of those things in their proper place, that'll help us not to have an unhealthy appetite for controversy. But secondly, we also need to beware being unable to stomach controversy. You see, there's a flip side to the coin. Yeah, some people have this unhealthy appetite for it, but some people don't have the stomach for it at all. And that's just as dangerous of a problem. Listen, if your definition of love doesn't have any room for sharp rebuke, like Paul says here, rebuke them sharply. If your definition of love doesn't have room for sharp rebuke, your definition is too narrow. It's not Jesus' definition of love. I think some people are afraid that, well, if we rebuke anyone, let alone rebuke them sharply, that's going to threaten the unity, the unity of the church. That's going to hurt people and it's going to cause division. But that's actually the opposite of the case. Done rightly for the right reasons, sharp rebuke actually strengthens the unity of the church. You say, how does that work? How could rebuking someone strengthen unity? Well, it brings people back in line with the truth so that we're all standing on the same foundation. Doctrinal error and sinful behavior, that's the real danger to the unity of the church. It is sin and it is false teaching that will divide and damage the church. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul had to sharply rebuke one of his coworkers, one of his fellow apostles, Peter himself. Listen to Galatians chapter two. You see, Peter was actually influenced by this same group, the circumcision party. And Paul writes, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's those guys again. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul called out Peter for his hypocrisy, and he challenged him in front of everyone. And you know what happened? Peter heard Paul's rebuke. He received it. And you know what the result was? Greater unity. Gentiles and Jews fellowshipping together around the table. There was more unity, not less, because of this rebuke. Listen, correction is never comfortable, but sometimes it's necessary. And this means that you, as a church member, need to expect and affirm the faithful rebuke of godly leadership. This is something that your pastors are called to do. So when you observe this happening from time to time, when false teaching is called out or even false teachers are rebuked or when certain living that, that is contrary to the gospel is challenged, then I want to ask you to support and encourage your leaders when they step up to the plate. 
We need faithful brothers and sisters to have our back when we fulfill this important duty of biblical leadership. And listen, don't just support your leaders. I also want to call you today to follow their example. Follow their example. Yes, while pastors lead the charge and are the ones who are primarily tasked with exposing doctrinal error and and keeping the church pure, this is primarily the responsibility of pastors. This is an effort that takes more than just leaders. Follow the example of faithful leaders. The church needs an entire functioning immune system, and you guys are part of that. Be willing to be part of that. Be willing to enter the fray when needed. Don't avoid conflict because it's uncomfortable. Don't shy away from necessary rebuke. Be willing to enter in and participate in the process of dealing with anything that would threaten the health of the church. This is applicable for all of us. So beware uh, having an unhealthy appetite for controversy or confrontation, but also beware not having the stomach for it at all. That's a problem too. And then finally, beware being unwilling to look in the mirror. Beware being unwilling to look in the mirror. Yes, we need to correct doctrinal error out there. Yes, we need to challenge sinful behavior in in, in the church. But we also need to be willing to put ourselves under the microscope. You need to recognize the importance this morning of living in accordance with the truth. And that means that sometimes you need to be willing to embrace the way that the word and faithful teachers of the word may challenge and rebuke you. Listen, we as a church are supposed to look different than the world, aren't we? We're not supposed to fit in. We're not supposed to look just like our neighbors. And we ought to welcome the ways in which God wants to make us different. The way God wants to continually purify us. Our lives must match our profession. And what this means is that sometimes we need to hear rebuke. Sometimes we need to be instructed. Sometimes we need to be corrected. So we should expect the gospel to have a purifying effect, one that makes us increasingly different than the culture around us. And so rather than resist that, I'm calling you today to embrace it, to welcome it, to invite it. Say, yes, God, have your way in me. Let your word shine the light on anything in my thinking or my behavior that you want to change. Listen, our love for God's glory, our love for Christ's body, our commitment to Christ's gospel should compel us to confront false teaching and any sort of lifestyle that is contrary to the gospel. So may Jesus empower us by his spirit to faithfully engage error with the truth and to faithfully receive as well the purifying rebuke of the gospel in our own lives. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful for the hope that we have, that even though we are all defiled and sinful and impure because of what we've done, at the cross, we find cleansing. We can be made pure. Thank you, Jesus, for offering us something that we could never do for ourselves. And Lord, as we believe this gospel, may we also be faithful to proclaim it, to uphold it, and to defend it. Give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us courage to know when false teaching needs to be silenced, to to see it and recognize it rightly, and then to deal with it with courage, with conviction, 
but to do so gently and with love. There are times for sharp rebuke, but I pray, God, that our goal would always be the health and the unity of the body. Lord, for any among us this morning who who may never have come to know Jesus Christ, for those who recognize that they don't fit yet into this category of those who've been purified by his blood, I pray that today they would recognize that what they need is not to jump through any hoops. It's not to make themselves clean and acceptable to you. It's not to do enough good works so that they can earn their salvation. What they need today is to believe the true gospel, this gospel that Paul was fighting for, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the power for salvation. Lord, may our hope be fixed in that truth and our eyes on Christ as we seek to be a healthy and faithful church that carries out your mission in the world today. Amen.